All right, so 1 Timothy 1. Um, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the command of God, our Savior, and of Jesus Christ, our hope. To Timothy, my true son in faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, in Jesus Christ, our Lord. By the way, this is on page 1192. Um, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that, the, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's word, which is by faith. The, command, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is, as good, is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those who practice homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else, is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. I thank Christ our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and un unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out onto me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King Eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them, you may fight the good battle, the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regards to the faith. Among them are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. It is, it is great to be with you and an extraordinary privilege to uh, look at God's Word together. Uh, we're going to focus on our chapter, so if you've got the Bible open, that'll be wonderful, but if not... Hopefully, uh, you'll be able to follow on and hear what's going on. So let me, let me pray and ask that God will speak to us through his word. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, your amazing mercy and grace towards us in your son. Uh, Father, we pray that uh, the truth of the gospel, the grace, the mercy and the peace we have with you 
uh, will be foundational and inform our thinking and our life together as your people. Be with us as we consider this your word. Uh, strengthen us by it. Encourage us in the way we relate to each other as we think about what it means to glorify your name. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of years ago, we uh, started a church just like this one at Colonel Light Gardens. And the, uh, all the things were organised. We planned to meet in uh, an RSL hall that was located in Colonel Light Gardens. We got to the Friday before the first time they were going to meet, the big public launch. So here we are on the Friday. And the council issued a notice uh, to us saying we weren't allowed to meet in this RSL hall. And if we did we'd incur a $20,000 fine every time we met in this RSL hall. They said, uh, while you'd hired the hall from uh, the owners, the RSL people, you needed a planning approval to be able to meet there as a church, otherwise you'd incur this, this uh, $20,000 fine every time it happened. This is a little unsettling, you know, two days before we are about to launch, we had hundreds of people planning to turn up, including, I might say, the, the mayor of the Mitcham Council who'd issued the notice. So that was interesting uh, in that sort of way. Anyway, on the, we managed to get this sort of uh, uh, permission to meet on the Sunday from the council while we worked stuff out, and we, we turned up on the Sunday. The uh, president of the RSL was there on that Sunday to lend his support, and we got talking to him about how he felt with this, this sort of uh, dispute we were having with the council. And uh, he, he's a guy who was a returned serviceman. And when he, we explained the whole situation, he said, and we asked him how he's feeling, he said, oh, he said, I feel fine. He said, I love a good fight. <laughs> and uh, it sounded like he'd had a few with the Mitcham Council uh, over the years. No, there's vision. Oh, this guy dressed in his battle fatigues with grenades strapped to his waist, going into the town council and giving them what for, you know, had <laughs> this sort of image. And if you met this guy, you would have had that image exactly the same sort of way. Uh, we didn't send him in to negotiate. Uh, we thought there were probably more subtle ways we could go about it. But I, those words just rang in my ears. I like a good fight. I guess the question I want to ask you this morning is, can you have a good fight? Uh, isn't that a contradiction in terms? Good fight. And most of us avoid fighting. We hate conflict. We don't like tension with people. We want to keep cordial relationships with others, just the way in which we tick. And I think that's especially so for a church. Isn't that right? I mean, we're built on love and truth. We want to have brotherly and sisterly affection for each other, lay down our lives for one another. That's what makes us tick. We don't want to take up weapons of warfare among the congregation of God's people. Am I right? Okay, yep. Which is why when you go to 1 Timothy 1 verse 18, it's a little odd. Paul's writing to Timothy and he says this to him. Uh, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by following them you may fight the good fight or the good battle. So he encourages him to fight. And you've got to think, well, why would he be doing that? Why would he be encouraging him in that way? And what is a good fight? Or when are Christians allowed to fight? It's a good thing probably to work out, I reckon. Let me leave that question with you, step back for a moment, put 1 Timothy in a bit more context before we take up that question again. What is good fighting? 
Uh, we're going to spend a couple of weeks in this letter. Uh, so what sort of document are we talking about? Uh, when, you, um, when you get letters in the mail, we're getting increasingly less of those because they cost more to send uh, and more of it's electronic. But when you get letters in the mail, uh, some bring you great joy and some bring you heartache, right? The ones with the, uh, the windows on them with your printed name normally make you feel a bit sad because normally they're bills, okay? Uh, you get an invitation, though, to a wedding, you cheer up. You know, it depends on the sort of letter that you're receiving. So what sort of letter have we got here? Well, it's certainly personal. Uh, it's written in the first century from the apostle to a friend of his. He describes himself in verse 1. Uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. If you went uh, back to Acts chapter 9, you'd see the moment when Paul put his trust in Jesus. Right, the background to his situation. He was a non-Christian. He had a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ and Jesus commissioned him to be a representative for Christianity or for Jesus. And apostle just means sent one, sent by Jesus. Paul founded this church that he's now writing to. So he's writing to Timothy, who is the pastor of the church effectively, uh, Paul started it, was there for about two to three years probably, instructing them. And therefore the letter is personal uh, to his sort of partner in the faith, his partner in Christian ministry. You pick it up in verse 2. Uh, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. Uh, he repeats that phrase again in verse 18 when he says to Timothy, my son. But I want to suggest to you this is not just a personal letter from Paul to Timothy. Uh, if you've got your Bibles there, just flick over or just go across the page to chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, because we see there that the, the letter is written not just to Timothy, uh, but it's written to Timothy as the pastor of a church. It's written for the church, okay? Verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3. I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household or family, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. This is a letter to Timothy, but it's a letter to a church about how they should function. Now, it's a church in the first century, but it's not just for first century churches. You would have picked that up from what Paul is saying here. He's writing for the benefit of believers and churches in every age, including 21st century Adelaide and including Trinity Grove. Okay, this is a word uh, for us. And it's important that we recognise that. And the reason I say it is because when you get into this letter, you realise that there are issues this letter raises that are controversial and uh, not seen to be politically correct in our particular age. Uh, you get to chapter 2, we'll come to it next week, and it argues the question about whether there are differences between the way in which men and women operate in church. Now, uh, we'll probably have a level of you know, engagement around that issue next week when we come together. It's a big issue, I think, for us to wrestle with. When you get to chapter 3, it has things to say about leadership and the, the way in which you actually look at a leader's private life as much as you do what he says to assess. And that's not the way we do it. Uh, how much did you hear about the private lives of our politicians in this election? Not, not a lot. They generally stayed away from that. You never do in Christian circles. 
Always look at the private life of somebody. Chapter 5, individualism's attacked. Chapter 6 seems to be not negative about the idea of slavery, and it's certainly anti-money. Right? There are lots of sort of sacred cows in this letter, some of which we'll get to, and some of which I may get to if I get invited back ever again. Okay, so uh, that's the reality. But today, today, chapter 1, what we're talking about is how to have a good fight. Right? Important for a young church like this one, Trinity Grove, to know how to have a good fight. All right? Right? Makes you nervous, actually. Makes you nervous. So let's get into it. Uh, what we get in verses 1 to 11 is a real focus on truth and intolerance, interestingly enough. Um, as I say, Paul had established the church, and then it's a couple of years later when he's writing to them uh, once again. When he last caught up with them, with the elders of this church, he'd actually warned them about a problem they were going to have. So Acts chapter 20, he got the elders of this church together and this is what he said to them about what was going to happen. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and they won't spare the flock. Even from among your own number, men will arise and distort the truth. And that's exactly what's happened. 1 Timothy 1 verse 3. He says to Timothy, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. And my wife, uh, Sue, who uh, apologizes for not being with us today, but will be with us next week, uh, she, just in a part-time way, uh, has a business doing risk management. What she does is she educates primarily doctors and lawyers, on how not to get sued, okay? How not to get sued, which is an interesting sort of an exercise. Tries to warn them of the danger signs or the, the risk areas uh, that could get them into trouble. If I was to ask you what are the risk areas for us as a church, for this church, what would be the ones that come to your mind? The... the the sort of leadership team for the whole network uh, went through this sort of exercise, did this risk matrix sort of thing, trying to calculate what were the risks for our network the other day. And uh, in the most dispassionate way, it's a bit distressing really, they said one of the risks for our network was that I would die. You know, oh, Paul might die. You know, what sort of risk is that? Moderate, you know, tick, you know. <laughs> it, it was sort of just, I'm in the room, you know. <laughs> what do you think is the risk management issue for this church? So is it going to be money... Is it going to be, uh, will we get enough young people in our church? Um, can I say the biggest risk for any church is always the same as the risk for the church in Ephesus? Right? It is false doctrine. Now, literally, actually, what it's saying here is different teaching. Okay? It's not, not actually false doctrine. It's different teaching, different teaching. So let me ask you, who are these different teachers, these false teachers? It's worth, worth knowing. What we're told is they're insiders in the church. We're not talking about the new atheists. We're not talking about the JWs who come knocking on your door. We're not talking about Buddhists. We're not talking about television evangelists, you know, who are a bit extremer on the edge. What Paul is warning Timothy about are established members of the church 
who've wandered away from genuine faith in Christ. Always trickier when you know them and you're friends with them. Also, notice they, they put themselves forward as people who teach the Bible. Uh, verse 7, they want to be teachers of the law. That's interesting, isn't it? Uh, their focus is obviously on the Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures, the Ten Commandments, maybe the moral law about how we should, should live as the people of God. But you normally don't think of false teachers as being keen on the Bible, do you? It's not normally the way in which you'd think. And they distort the message of the Bible, but they keep taking you back to it. And then the third thing about these false teachers is that they're wrong. No question about it. That is, their different teaching is different because it's different to what the Apostle Paul taught them in the first place, the apostolic gospel. So how do you detect false teaching or false teachers? I had to um, fly interstate the other day, and any of you who've flown, you know this is the standard thing. You get to the airport, you've got to get all your, your metal out of your body and uh, put it uh, on a tray, and that goes through a machine, and you go through this arch, and if you've still hung on to any metal, it beeps, right? It sends off a warning, and you're in trouble. Uh, that's the way it works. Wouldn't it be great if we could have one of those for false teachers? Okay, we just stick it on the door over here. You know, Jack comes in once and they, bam, 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 you know, false teacher, false teacher, wolf in sheep's clothing, and we all sort of gang tackle him. Okay, you know, and, uh, but you don't sort of have that advantage really. Uh, so how do you detect false teachers? Ch chapter 3, interestingly, talks about how you assess leadership. The qualities and the character you look for, we'll come back to that in a little while. But here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, the focus is on examining what they teach and to see if it lines up with what the Apostle Paul taught. Because as we see in verse 1 of this letter, Paul talks about that the fact that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God. Right? He acts, he acts under instructions from God. He has taught by the command of God. Paul's in a very different situation, so to me. You know, uh, I'm trying to teach you the Bible, and I might get it wrong. If I get it wrong, you've got the same Bible, you ought to sort me out. Okay? That is, I'm fallible. Mike, you probably haven't worked this out yet. Mike's fallible too. You know, uh, that is, I'm sure you've worked that out. But do you know what I mean? We, we trying to faithfully sit under the word of God and teach it. The apostle teaches with the authority that he's given by God uh, to pass on the gospel to others. See, it's a very different sort of authority. So you look and see if it's in line with what Paul teaches. Now, can I say that that uh, is an important issue for us today? Uh, I sometimes hear people say, I really like the teaching of Jesus. You know, he's loving, he's tolerant, uh, you know, compassionate, you know. But I think Paul the Apostle stinks, you know. He's uh, anti-women, anti-gay, anti-whales, anti-lots of things, you know. That's the way in which they view it. Uh, the point being made here is that Paul is a Jesus man. Understand, he's commissioned by the Lord Jesus and he comes with the authority of God. You cannot put a piece of paper between them 
in that sense of the authority and the lining up of their teaching. You can't be a Jesus person without being an Apostle Paul person when it comes to the scriptures. It is the word of God. That's important when you come to a chapter like next week when we talk about men and women in church and it's so contentious. Okay, we'll come to that next week. What are these false teachers? What are they teaching? We've got some idea of who they are. Uh, Now, the the teaching is not completely clear as you go through this letter. So you get indications about what it is. Look at verse 4. We're told they devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Uh, They promote controversies rather than God's work. Or verse 6, they get into meaningless talk. Or verse 7, we're told they want to be teachers of the law. Now clearly we've got them focusing on secondary issues. Obviously they're interested in, in debate. Uh, but debates that don't contribute much to glorifying God. It seems to be talking about the focus being on what we do, how we live, rather than what God's done. Let me uh, see if I can run uh, a teaching past you, and you tell me if you think it's false or not. Okay? I'll give it a shot. And we'll take a vote afterwards, just like we did on the bags. All right? No, I won't do that. But uh, let me, let's say, I'll run something past you like this. It's wonderful that you believe in Jesus. Absolutely wonderful. But are you serious about living a righteous life to please God? You know, really serious. Because the, the key to abundant living is obedience to the commands of God. And if you don't build on your salvation with godly living, then you can't be certain about your salvation really, can you? That, so how does that sound? That sounds pretty authentic, doesn't it? Pretty close to the mark. Notice what it says in verse 9. We know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and the irreligious. The law, the Old Testament instructions about how to live, they highlight your sin. They highlight your failure to honour God. They make it very clear the vast distance between you and God. These false teachers, they, they seem to be pushing what we would call legalism, uh, a real distorted emphasis on how we live and their instructions are all about behaviour modification. So translating it today, what are some of the things, I guess I was trying to think about things I've heard over the years, uh, and these are things that have happened in churches I've been in. You know, it's, it's common. Things like serious Christians read their Bible probably for an hour a day and pray for the same length of time. Now, is there anything wrong with reading your Bible for an hour a day or praying for an hour a day? No, of course not. But serious Christians really do it, don't they? I mean, it's the, it's the benchmark for Christianity. See, you must do those things. 
God is pleased if you give 20% of your income to the church. Where would you find that in the Bible? It's just a man-made instruction that's an application of a principle about grace. Uh, no sex outside marriage. Uh, the Bible's really clear about that. Uh, but if you're really keen as a Christian, then you'd avoid being alone with a person of the opposite sex and you certainly would never even kiss somebody you were going out with before you got married. The Bible doesn't say that, does it? Sounds like a really sensible principle based on what the Bible might say, though. It's just that you've got to be so careful about establishing smaller and smaller little things for people to jump through. False teachers, they're in a controversy instead of the work of God. Now, what might that look like? Debate, discussion, loved, arguing. I came across a guy who was in the young adults group at Trinity in the city, same time I was, so when we were both at university. This is about 25 years after we were both in that group. And I asked him what he's up to these days. He said, oh, he said, I'm an atheist these days, I'm not a Christian. Um, and I tried to find out why. And one of the things he said to me was, when he was in the young adults group at Trinity, he said, you know, I really enjoyed the people there and everything like that. He said, I don't think I was ever a Christian. I don't, have, I don't think I ever believed, actually, what the Bible had to say. And then he paused and he looked at me. He said, but you know, he said, I loved debating the finer points of Calvinism. Well, for how, how sad that he could love the debating about controversial things but I don't, not actually even believe. And I take it something like that is going on with these false teachers. Controversy, focusing on small things over here, not the central things that are going on. They're the risky areas. And I want you to note how different what Paul focuses on is to those sort of things. Like in verse 2, notice how he starts off talking about the gospel, he says, grace and mercy and peace from God. He kicks it off on that note. False teachers, it's what, it's what you do. That's what religion is. The gospel, it's all about what God has done. What God has done, not what you do. There's the focus. So, let me move on, if you're following the outline. What do you do if you're faced with false teaching that's driving in that sort of direction? I reckon the way we generally operate as a society is we, we agree to disagree, everyone's entitled to their own opinions, we just need to work through our differences, you know, that's the way in which it works. Notice what Paul does, verse 3. Command them not to teach false doctrines, different teaching any longer. Command them to stop. Well, it's not that am ambiguous really, is it? It's really clear and straightforward. Now, you might think, oh, that's a bit authoritarian. And I want to say, no, no, it's not authoritarian, although it does come with authority, with the authority of God and the Word of God. And that's always got to be the case for God's people. But I do want you to notice the motivation that accompanies it. Look at verse 5. 
The goal of this command is love. Can I say that the, when salvation is at stake, when the gospel is at stake, heaven and hell, do you know what the most unloving thing you can do is? The most unloving thing? Nothing. That's what's unloving. Love is strong. Love's actually intolerant when it comes to the truth of the gospel. Must be the case. What Paul then does, having set up the situation, is he now focuses on gospel truth. Uh, He talks about the gospel being poured out and how wonderful it is. Verse 12, he just personalises it. He speaks from the heart about what's happened in his life. Verse 15, Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. And notice Christ didn't come into the world to save people who were trying to keep the law. Didn't come to save them. Didn't come to save good living people, church going people, nice people, middle class people. Uh, Didn't come so that people would live to their full potential. Didn't come for any of those reasons. He came to save sinners people who do not treat God the way he deserves to be treated. All of us. That's who he came to save. Notice how Paul describes himself, of whom I am the worst. I don't think at this point Paul is saying, if you sat Paul beside Hitler, Stalin, Osama bin Laden, that you'd, you'd be able to say, well, let's add up their sin. Paul wins hands down. He's, much, he's committed much more atrocities than those other guys. I don't think it's saying that. When he's saying, I am the worst, I think the point he's making is that he was the one who led the opposition. That's bit of, we just, guess what? We've just come through a political campaign. I don't know if anyone noticed, right? Eight weeks. It's been long, hasn't it? You know? Now, who was the leader of the opposition? Bill Shorten. Yeah, yeah, I thought you'd probably have worked that out by now. Uh, Bill Shorten led the opposition, okay? And we're not sure what that means at this point in time. There's a sense in which what Paul is saying is he was the leader of the opposition against Jesus. Right? He was a, a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Blasphemer doesn't mean he had lots of four-letter words in his armory. Right? Blasphemer was that he was against Jesus. That's the point that he is making. He hated Jesus and he killed his followers. Paul is saying he is the poster boy for God's grace and mercy. Verse 16. I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Well, verse 14, he says, the grace of God was poured out on me. And he's saying, the gra- I was drenched in the grace of God. I saw a documentary the other day uh, based on the farming district in western New South Wales. They've had a lot of rain lately. And then they interviewed this farmer who said, we've been through a 10-year drought. And what it's meant is that the soil has just been dry as anything. And one rain wasn't going to do it. But he said, we've had consistent rains, so let me show you. And he just dug into the earth down inches and he said see it's still moist 
And the guy was saying, we now have, we have hope for the future. We can, we can actually think we might survive because the land has actually been soaked in by consistent rain. Paul is sort of saying the same thing. I got drenched in the gospel. How good is God that he's had mercy on me, someone who opposed him to his face. And I've never recovered from that, is what Paul the Apostle is saying, that knowledge of God's kindness, his forgiveness and his mercy. Now, can I ask you, I'm not going to get you to respond individually, but can I ask you, have you experienced that? Have you experienced what it means to be to know that you, despite your failure to treat God the way he deserves, that he has poured out his grace and his generosity and his mercy upon you in a way that you just did not deserve? It happened to me when I was about 20. I was a university student and I was running as fast away from God as I possibly could. And God in his kind of just arrested me and uh, brought me to himself. And I just did not deserve that. And now it's, it's now 35 years after that. Uh, but I consistently keep remembering what God has done, not because it happened back there, but because it has implications for my whole life in all sorts of different ways. Uh, the way in which God has just richly graced me. Now, has it happened to you? really important you know the answer to that so you can say that from from the heart and that that reality has gripped you and let me say with the young church it's a great thing to ask people about uh, now if you're not someone who is a follower of Jesus don't uh, if someone asks you that then just say I'm not uh, but maybe flip it on its head and ask them but but in a church it, it's a really good way to get to know people by finding out how They've come to experience the grace of God in their lives. Really good thing to do. It's one of the best ways to get to know people. And it's a really good thing to have as the foundation for what we are as a people of God. Grace, mercy, peace. Not because we started a new church, but because God brought us into his family. Right, right at the heart of who we are. Let me try and um, wrap some of these ideas together on that whole idea of fighting. Uh, I want to say that some fights are worth having. Timothy, my son, verse 18, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you. So by following them, you may fight the good fight or fight the good battle. What's a good fight? Let me say, choose. you've got to choose your fights carefully. I, I've been a Christian uh, for around you know, 35 years now. That's a bit longer than some of you and a bit shorter than others. Uh, so I'm yeah, somewhere in the middle, maybe at the topper end of that. <laughs> uh, I've seen some fights uh, in my time, and as a pastor, I've witnessed a few. I've probably been involved in a few. Uh, but can I say, they're often not good fights, right? Not good fights, because they're not on central matters. Uh, in I became a Christian in 19 around 1980. One of the first annual general meetings of a church that I went to in a traditional church building. And uh, I went with sort of, you know, interested. Never been to a church meeting before. Yeah, it should be interesting. Got there. Yeah, the big issue 
for that meeting, 1980 or 1981. Do you know what it was? Choir robes, okay? Big issue. The pastor had actually gotten rid of the choir robes and the choir and a few of their friends were very upset by this. Strong language, argument, dominated the meeting, right? Now, I don't think that was a good fight, right? It was a trivial fight. Blessed are you for you don't meet in a church building and blessed are you because your chairs are not something you're attached to particularly, right? That is, it's, it's a good thing not to be... And, and if you're thinking about buying a building at some stage, think twice, right? Think twice because it's the start of issues and arguments that can occur, right? Choir robes. What's another one? Church music, right? You haven't had any differences of opinion on church music so far, I wouldn't have thought, right? You just think, Liv and Anton are doing a wonderful job and Jake plays exactly what you want to hear every week. Is that right? We're all in unity on this one, right? No, you're not. I'm sure you're not, right? I guarantee you're not. Because we've all got opinions about this one, haven't we? You know, traditional hymns, you know, mustn't change the tune, certainly mustn't change the words, right? Because the words might, you know, that, oh, no, they're not scripture. That's right. <laughs> Gosh, of course. Uh, do, do you know what I mean? Oh, but music has been a, a real point of contention for churches. Are we going to fight about that? No. No. Not real. I'm not saying you can't have an opinion. That's fine. But we're not going to fight about it, are we? Well, you might, but then you repent, Okay. It's not the basis upon which you have an argument. Church government, how should that be done? I came through uh, Bible college and there was a really strong group of Presbyterians that I came through college. And my experience with uh, Presbyterians, these guys are really good mates of mine, uh, but totally convinced that their church governance model fell out of the Bible, right? And they happened to pick it up when they were walking along one day, right? And that the church governance model that you know, the Baptists or the Anglicans have got was fairly substandard and it's as if they just stumbled onto it and hadn't read their Bibles at all. Okay, That was the sort of impression I got. Here's the news. There is no biblical church governance model. right? Uh, should we fight about it? No. no. Now, are there better or worse ways to manage our life together? Sure. Can we discuss those? Yes. Are we going to fight about them? Not unless there's something that contradicts the Scriptures, friends. Let me um, take it to a slightly more uh, theological thing that can sometimes capture people. When it comes to baptism, should we baptise by full immersion or just by sort of, you know, sprinkling people with water or pouring a bit of water on their head? Okay, I reckon if I did a survey here, I'd probably get different opinions on that one too. Uh, We can't possibly think, can't possibly think that something that we do to recognise someone's conversion, right, so we're not going to baptise anyone unless we've got sign of conversion, household or individual, right? never going to do it unless we've got that. So can we possibly think that something we do after evidence of conversion really depends on how, the volume of water that you use? Really? Really? Now, I've, I've had the arguments with people, but you don't fight about that because there's nothing to do with the grace and the mercy and the peace that come from God. Right? Nothing to do with it. 
Now, you might want to have an argument with me about that, <laughs> uh, but I'm not likely to fight with you, if that makes sense. Okay, it's not, not central. There are lots of things that people can get distracted by. But friends, when it comes to a matter of salvation, we will always fight. Because we will always stand for the truth of the gospel. Let me tell you what they are, some of those. Bodily resurrection. Uh, I've uh, been in context of a denominational setting where people deny that. I will fight for that every day of the week. Because unless you have Jesus raised bodily from the dead, we do not have hope and confidence as we face the future. Uh, the death of Jesus on the cross for our sin. It's not just an example of someone doing a loving thing. If Jesus did not die for our sins, we are still in our sins. That's a salvation matter. I will fight on that one within the people of God every day of the week. Every day of the week. When it comes to the authority of the scriptures as the basis for our operation, I was invited to give a lecture to a group of people who are lining up to get ordained as ministers of the gospel. And I spoke from uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, uh, picked out a section of it, ex you know, just did basically what I did this morning, looking at a section of it, and one of the people after I'd finished said, uh, I, uh, I don't find that helpful at all, uh, because while I'm committed to uh, the, the Gospels, I think uh, Paul is actually, I just have no regard or time for Paul at all, so I never refer to any of his letters. Okay. Now this person's actually in ministry in a church in Adelaide now. Uh, you cannot just discard the scriptures at will because there are things in them we find difficult. We submit ourselves to the word of God, the scriptures, and we have them. I will fight for that one every day of the week. And when people call sin, not sin, uh, we've got a big ethical debate going on in Australia right now, but we cannot call sin, not sin. Paul makes that point really clearly as he goes through the things that are contrary to sound doctrine, verse 10. And the list he's given are to do with ethical matters that come before that largely. Uh, there are some things you should fight about and lots of things you should be careful not to fight about. But notice we always fight with the right motivation. Uh, I reckon when it comes to fights, it's easy to have strong fights based on wrong motivations. Jealousy, pride, self-promotion. Some people actually enjoy conflict and like arguing. The need to be right uh, because you want to have power or control over others. Or even just because you have a, a personality clash with somebody. You know what it's like just to rub someone up the wrong way and find that everything they do just irritates you. Friends, when believers fight, the motivation is always love. It should always be love. Notice back in uh, the start of the chapter, verse 3, we're told there's a command not to teach false doctrine. And verse 5, the goal of this command is love. Now, I want to say that love, that love can be very strong. 
Look at the end of the chapter, verses 19 and 20. Notice what we're told there. Some have rejected these and have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Now, what does handing over to Satan mean? Uh, it's not absolutely clear here, to be quite honest. It probably means excommunicated or, you know, like kept out of the church or maybe publicly denounced. But it's possible Paul could be saying that he has prayerfully handed these people over uh, to be taught not to blaspheme or something like that. But I want to say it doesn't sound very nice, does it? You know, uh, that is, it's, it's a t- say this morning, right? I said, um, it's come to my attention that there's been someone who's been teaching falsely in their small group here at, uh, I spent time with them. I've tried to point out from the scriptures why they're in error. But now I've decided this morning, I'm going to tell you who that person is and I'm going to hand them over to Satan, right? Uh, we're going to exclude them from our fellowship. So they're here this morning. I'm going to nominate. It's Damien Roy, okay? So Damien Roy, who's been, you know, uh, false teaching. His wife steps away from him, okay? Now, let me say, if that was, if that, I say it because I know Damien, he's a friend, okay? <laughs> friend, friend. <laughs> but if I was serious, I reckon I could cut, cut the air with a knife. <laughs> Everyone's going, is he really doing that? You know? Right, can you imagine, Paul, this is a letter to a congregation to be read out publicly. Hymenaeus and Alexander are named publicly in this congregation. I don't know, maybe their wife and their kids were still in the fellowship. Um, that's, a t- that's a tough thing to do. But it's a loving thing to do. Do you understand? It, it's, it's motivated by love for these people, for this church. And it's even motivated by love for Hymenaeus and Alexander because he wants them to stop blaspheming. That is, he wants them to stop rejecting the salvation that they've tasted. And so he takes strong action to help them come to that point. It's because the gospel's at stake. Friends, can I... Good fighting. Good fighting. Sounds like a contradiction in terms, doesn't it? Can I say believers never enjoy fights? We never look for fights. We never want to fight. Never. But you must not avoid fighting. Not when the gospel turns on it. Not when salvation's at stake. Uh, we, We need to have courage to hold fast to the scriptures, to the word of God, as a community of God's people and not to be diverted from them, okay? That, that is actually worth fighting for. And I want to say to you as a young church, always fight for that. Probably not too much else. Always fight for that though, okay? Can I pray for you? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do. Uh, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that um, in lots of ways it's, it's a tough word. Uh, it's a confronting word. And yet, Father, we pray that As we reflect on it together, you'll give us uh, both love and courage, faithfulness to the scriptures, uh, kindness towards one another, and yet the the willingness to correct one another when we stray from the gospel, when we get into legalism, when we get into 
uh, just arguments are a bit pointless and yet held so strongly. Father, we pray you'll help us to do what Paul does. Keep remembering your grace and your mercy, the peace that come from you through Christ, to make that at the very heart of who we are. And then when that's threatened, uh, to always be strong and faithful to your word and to you. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.